David J. Linden is a professor in the Department of Neuroscience at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. He is the author of Unique, The New Science of Human Individuality, The Accidental Mind, How Brain Evolution Has Given Us Love, Memory, Dreams, and God, The Compass of Pleasure, How Our Brains Make Fatty Foods, Orgasm, Exercise, Marijuana, Generosity, Vodka, Learning, and Gambling Feel So Good, and Touch, The Science of the Hand, Heart, and Mind. His laboratory has worked for many years on the cellular substrates of memory storage, recovery of function following brain injury, and other topics. David Linden, welcome to The Creative Process. Thanks for having me. I've been so fascinated by Unique, the new science of human individuality, and I just find it so fascinating because the complexities of what creates a human character and how you can put your finger on just one element, or it just opens my mind to endless speculation. I believe you're going to share a passage just so that listeners have an introduction to your work. Sure, I'd be happy to. This is the passage that opens my recent book. I should just learn to relax and enjoy music, but I can't leave well enough alone. Case in point, I'm blasting down the highway on a fine sunny day when the juvenile comes on the car radio with that infectious New Orleans bounce, and I start to bop in my seat. Oh, where'd she get her eyes from? She'd get it from her mama. Oh, where'd she get her thighs from? She'd get it from her mama. Oh, where'd she learn to cook from? She'd get it from her mama. I'm singing along now, doing the call and response and smacking the steering wheel to the beat. But on a parallel track, my mind is already chewing on the lyrics. It's the curse of the nerd to overanalyze. I start thinking about DNA. Okay, she got her eyes entirely from her mama's and papa's genes, but those thighs? That's probably a mixture of genes and learned eating habits. The population of bacteria resident in her gut affects her metabolism, enhance the thickness of her thighs. Her mama probably taught her how to cook. So that's down to social experience. And we know from identical twin studies that individual food preferences have only a small genetic component, so not much mama or papa there. But perhaps she inherited the gene variant that confers supersensitivity to bitter foods. So her cooking style, which reflects her food preferences, is likely to be more complicated than the thigh situation. My train of thought only gets more convoluted as the song continues. Why she swear that she the boss? She get it from her mama. Why she always got to call the law? She get it from her mama. Where does her assertive nature come from? Was it how she was raised? Or perhaps the crucial influence of her peers? Have genes contributed to her confidence? There's evidence for this view as well. Variants in neurotransmitters and all that. Will she always feel like the boss and have the gumption to say so? Or is this confidence just reflective of her present stage in life? We know that personality traits are somewhat changeable in children, but are fairly stable in adults in the absence of major trauma. Yes. I know that to a large degree, I'm missing the point. Juveniles not rapping to detail the experiences, developmental randomness, and genetic factors that shape us as individuals. Nonetheless, he raises many of the central issues of human individuality. The protagonist has a list of traits that we learn about as the song unfolds. In addition to being attractive, confident, and skilled in the kitchen, she's funny, and she's close to her friends. How did she get that way? Yeah, it's so fascinating. And as you take apart a simple song, catchy tune, but there's also a lot of this received wisdom. So without realizing it through the generations, even the way farmers breed plants or you bring up domesticated animals and in subsequent chapters. So it's really a complex science. What initially drew you to it? 
Well, to me, I was inspired by a colleague of mine here where I work at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore, USA. And this colleague, Jeremy Nathans, wrote a little essay about human individuality in a book that I edited called Think Tank, which was a collection of short essays by neuroscientists where I asked them to explain the thing that they thought they most wanted people in the general audience to understand about neuroscience. And I was so impressed with Jeremy's essay that I thought it deserved a whole book. So even though I'm not a geneticist and I really don't work on these topics, I thought I would dive in because it really is, it's a fundamental human question. How do we become individuals? It's a basic thing about being alive and thinking. So to me, the appeal was clear. Yes. So you're a biologist. And yes, there's a variety of lenses and a variety of disciplines. What I found was interesting, it's often kind of boiled down to this question of like nature versus nurture. And I know that you prefer the word experience or, wait a moment, I think you prefer how individuality really emerges through heredity interacting with experience filtered through the inherent randomness of development, but hard to fit that on a t-shirt or a bumper sticker. So help us understand what that means. Well, so nature versus nurture is a phrase that was popularized by Francis Galton in the late 19th century. And the idea behind it is that if you were to look at a particular trait, say shyness, or height. Let's take height because that's easy. You could say, well, to what degree can we attribute height to nature, in this case, meaning the gene variants that you inherit from your parents, versus nurture, in this case, meaning how you were raised by your parents and by your community. And I have many problems with this expression. Part of it is that the nature part shouldn't just mean genetics. In other words, there's all kinds of biological things that are not genetic things. So let me give you an example. If your mother fought off a viral infection while you were developing in utero, then you have a much higher chance of developing schizophrenia or autism when you grow up. Now, that's biological, but it's not hereditary. That's not something that you would then acquire and then pass on to your own children. It only happens in the one generation. The other problem is when we hear the word nurture, we really focus on the family, how your parents raised you or failed to raise you, how your community was involved. And those things are very important, but they're far from everything that impinges upon you in your life. I take experience as the thing to substitute for nurture because it is much more inclusive. And it includes not just social experience from your family and your peers and your community, but also experience in the more general sense. What foods did you grow up eating? What was the temperature uh, or the light cycle in the place where you grew up? We now know that these are things that influence traits. If we're to come back to height as an example, height is a trait that is very heritable, meaning a large fraction of it is by the gene variants you inherit from your parents. So if you live, say, in Western Europe or the United States or Canada, places that are fairly affluent, then on average, your height will be about 80% determined by the genes you inherit from your parents. 
However, if you live in a poorer situation where you might not get enough to eat, or you might be battling chronic infectious diseases, or be stressed by war or pollution, then you can't fulfill your genetic potential for height. And in that situation, the contribution of heredity to height is no longer 80%. It might be smaller, like 50 or 60%. So that's another important thing. When we throw around these percentages, they only work for certain populations. It's going to vary depending on what group of humans you're looking at. Exactly. And of course, it's always this complex calculation, and you can't say that it applies to everyone, whether it's experience, genetic, environmental. When these are just new terms or new ways of thinking about gender identity at the moment, and this is something, is it genetic? There's a kind of choice in your sexual orientation and your gender identity. I mean, I even, I know I have to be careful about this because it's something that we don't know enough about. But I also wonder, because we have an environmental channel and we've discussed environmental changes to our diet and the water, and then that changes like the hormonal balance in our bodies and there's hormones in our water and in our foods. So I don't know what your reflections are on all those things. Well, so yeah, it's a really interesting topic and one that, of course, gets politically fraught. We know a lot more about sexual orientation, who you like, than about gender identity, who you feel yourself to be. Because gender identity, it's really only being studied in an effective way in really just the last few years. And the studies we have are rather a few people in them, and they're not yet that reliable. What we do know about sexual orientation is that it is partly heritable, but it's pretty weak. In other words, if you just look at studies of families and you look at, in particular, studies of either fraternal or identical twins that were either adopt, raised together or apart, which is the geneticist's favorite way of trying to untangle these contributions, what you come out with is that in cisgender males, there's about a 25% of the variation in sexual orientation can be attributed to gene variants. And in females, the number is slightly different. I can't actually bring that number to mind. I think it's in the ballpark of about 20%. So these are significant effects, but they're far, far, far from the whole story. It's not like height, which is 80% heritable, or earwax type, dry or wet, which is 100% heritable and is a very unusual trait like that. Neither is it like speech accent, which is 0% heritable and is entirely dependent by the, the people you heard speak in the early years of your life, particularly your peers. So there is a small genetic, but significant genetic component to sexual orientation, and it's slightly different in males and females. And interestingly, it's not general. So if I were to have a gay brother, then the chance of me being gay would become higher. But if I have a lesbian sister, that does not change the chance of me being gay or vice versa. If a woman has a lesbian sister, then the chance of her being attracted to women is higher. And if she has a gay brother, it doesn't make any difference at all. So it's not like gayness or, or straightness is what heritability is acting on. It's attraction to males or attraction to females. 
And that's a subtle distinction, but I think it's very important. The other thing that is really interesting and fascinating is that there is, from a, a big meta-analysis that was done by the American Psychological Association, there is really no evidence whatsoever that links events in the family to your probability of being gay or straight or bi. So, well, that's a mystery. If it's not how you were raised by your family, and it's only a little bit genetic, what is it? Well, I think you had a hint of some of it when you're talking about hormones. There is some evidence that hormonal exposure in utero matters. So if biologically female fetuses are exposed to what we call androgens, the class of male hormones that includes testosterone, that increases the probability that the child who is born and then grows up will be attracted to women when they grow up, even if that child is biologically female. Likewise, there seems to be something similar for gay men and exposure to estrogen and female sex hormones. That said, there's a lot of mystery. We're far from understanding in totality how the trait of sexual orientation arrives. And we also know that there are enormous cultural influences. There are societies that have sort of a revered place for homosexual behavior in the pantheon and others where it is really looked down upon. And that seems to have influence on how this trait develops. Yes. And it's also interesting as a segue a bit, but in Unique, you reveal why human individuality, the things that set us apart, are in fact essential to our ability to live together. It seems logical, but it's a different way of thinking about cooperation and cohesive societies. Well, right. I think it's important because we're not like orangutans, right? Orangutans meet, they mate, and then the male runs off and you never see him again. He doesn't have anything to do with raising the child, right? So humans are unusual in the sense that we mate all the time, not just in the fertile times of the cycle, that most human sex is recreational rather than procreative, that in most cases, the male stays around to provide resources to the offspring. And this is probably related to the fact that we have the longest childhoods of any animal that's ever been studied. And the reason we have that is to because of our big fat brains. So the human brain at birth barely fits through the birth canal, and there can be all kinds of trouble in childbirth, but it's about 400 cubic centimeters, roughly the size of an adult chimpanzees. But then it grows to become about 1,200 cubic centimeters in the adult. During that growing period, we're not yet able to live independently because the brain is still maturing. And the brain really isn't done maturing until approximately age 20, or some people would even argue a little later about age 25. So this makes humans quite atypical. And because we live in societies, and this, is, this has been true throughout the 300,000 or so years of Homo sapiens, it is estimated that for most of human society before the development of agriculture, we lived in bands of about 40, 50 people. But still, it's good in that situation to have everyone not 
have the same traits, whether those traits are physical or behavioral. It's good to have people who are particularly good at one thing or particularly good at another thing. Maybe someone in your social group has really good eyesight and can spot that food source far away in the bush, or someone else was a really good hunter, or someone else has really good hearing and knows when you're about to be attacked by the lion. It is beneficial to have creation in traits in populations of animals generally, but in humans in particular. And so the, as you've written both in Unique and in other books, but the genetic and environmental and the complex things that go into establishing our personality types or our propensity towards addiction. And as you mentioned there, the human brain is still developing beyond puberty, not really formed. And so that we know that a lot of like offenders who might find themselves for these various reasons, maybe commit committing crimes, but what has gone into that, we don't fully address in our legal system in, in the carceral state. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. I mean, I think there are neurobiological reasons why we in many societies have legal ideas that children and adolescents are not fully responsible adults. For example, we have the idea that they shouldn't be able to consent to legal contracts or consent to sexual activity. Or, and we have the idea that they are not culpable for their actions in the same way, hence juvenile court systems. These ideas, I think, are not just things that were plucked out of the air. The biology of human brain development is consistent with those notions. Another thing I'd like to mention, because I think it's relevant to what you were asking before about, is it good or why is it good to have variation in human populations? comes from the other part of traits. So there's experience and there's experience broadly considered, both social and non-social, and there's heredity. And then there's this third thing, which is developmental randomness. And the best way to illustrate this is if you look at newborn so-called identical twins, what biologists like to call monozygotic twins. So essentially, these are babies that are born with the same DNA sequence. They've been lying right next to each other in the womb developing. So while there is a little bit of variation in what happens in the womb, there isn't that much. It's pretty much the same environment for baby A and baby B. And yet, even at the moment of birth, identical twin humans are not truly identical either behaviorally or physically. In other words, if you might look at them and say, oh yeah, boy, they look pretty similar. I could mix them up. They have similar faces, similar bodies. But if you look carefully, if you were to do a CT scan and say, all right, well, what's the size of the liver in baby number one versus baby number two for identical twins? It's not going to be identical. Likewise, one might already be more fussy than the other or make eye contact more right? And parents of twins know this. I'm a parent of twins myself. So this is brought home. My twins are fraternal. So there's something that already made these so-called identical twins not really identical, even at the moment of birth, where most of the experience that we like to think about, and certainly all of the social experience, hasn't happened yet. And so what is that thing? Well, what that thing is, is developmental randomness. And this comes from the fact that the development of 
really the whole body, but let's just focus on the brain, isn't absolutely uniquely specified as a wiring diagram in the DNA. So it's not like there's some huge blueprint of how all these hundreds of billions of neurons with their trillions of connections wire up to each other, and that's there in the DNA, and then the baby comes out exactly made to this plan. Rather, the instructions are kind of vague. I'm anthropomorphizing a bit, but the instructions from the DNA might be, all right, well, you neurons that are growing this way, about half of you cross over to the other side of the brain, and the other half of you keep going the way you were. Well, in one fetus developing, maybe 40% of the axons will cross over to the other side of the brain, another one 60% will. And it is pseudo-random the way that happens. So this is a source of genetic and then trait variability that nature is providing, is stirring the pot and giving rise to variation in populations of animals, including humans, even if they're genetically identical. You did discuss numerous studies of twins, which is fascinating to see the different variations. In your previous book, Touch, the Science of Hand, Heart, and Mind, that also goes into this nurture aspect of if one is given a, a child or a, an infant, really, it has to happen young, is given or is a deprived of affection, it can create consequences going far into adulthood. Just to help us understand that and how... You said to be human is to be emotional. It's an actual need. Maybe it's a human right to have touch and intimacy. Yeah, well, I'd say, right, so this is particularly, it's important all through life. Touch is a fundamentally emotional sense, and we tend not to think about it. It's probably the, the least discussed, least understood sense. It doesn't have the primacy of vision or hearing, but you can be born blind and I have a perfectly rich, terrific life. And you can be born deaf and have a perfectly rich, terrific life in many ways. But if you're deprived of touch at an infant, say in the first year or year and a half of life, and this happened in the orphanages under the Ceausescu regime in Romania in the 1970s and 80s, when there weren't enough caretakers to hold and snuggle these babies, these babies developed chronic neuropsychiatric diseases that unfortunately have seemed to be lifelong. And not just neuropsychiatric diseases, but immune diseases, digestive diseases, all kinds of problems. And well, you might say, well, how do you know it was the lack of touch that did it? I mean, there were probably other, maybe these kids were getting malnourished in these orphanages too, and maybe it was really that. Well, the reason we know is that in some cases, there were volunteers who were able to come into some orphanages and cuddle the babies for a certain amount of time. And that was able to almost completely reverse these deleterious effects in adulthood. Unfortunately, there's a critical period where touch is required from birth up to around one and a half, two years. And if the touch only starts happening afterwards, unfortunately, the die is cast. And those problems are already there and will last throughout life. So touch is crucial in, in early life, but it continues being crucial throughout childhood and adulthood. And basically, the way I like to think of it is touch is social glue. It is what makes us help feel connected to those around us, whether it is in our family or our friends or depending on cultural situations, maybe in the workplace or in the community broadly. 
Yeah. And now, of course, there are these taboos and there's, of course, lawsuits and appropriate touch, of course, is important. But it does open when you're relaxed, you can be receptive, you can learn, you can be productive. I remember we had a contribution from a writer and she's a senior citizen and she wrote this piece called How Many Times Am I Touched in a Week? And she just had counted it and it wasn't, she's distant from her family. It's still a popular essay on our website and it just makes you reflect. Deprived of that, it's almost like a kind of nourishment that you're missing. Absolutely. And it's a problem for people in many stages of life, but it's particularly notable among the elderly because a lot of old folks may have have a partner who has passed. Maybe they don't live close to their family. Maybe they're in an institutional setting and there just aren't that many opportunities for touch. Now, of course, the best touch is loving touch from someone. But the truth is that even a massage from a stranger that you pay for is pretty good and it carries a lot of benefits. And I think more and more people who run care environments for the elderly are realizing that the the benefits of massage therapy are enormous for older folks. And following on from your book, Touch, what are your thoughts on hypersensitivity in individuals? You mean like ASMR and that sort of thing? Well, there's certainly a lot of evidence that certain folks are very sensitive to certain kinds of sensations. There's this word you may have heard called misophonia, which means people who are particularly agitated by certain sounds like chewing or scratching or something like that. What's interesting is that other people find those same sounds to be soothing, the people who are enthusiasts of these ASMR recording. And so probably somehow these things are linked biologically, but it's very, very poorly understood. The other thing that you're probably aware of is that many folks on the autism spectrum are very sensitive to loud sounds, to flashing lights, and also to light touch on their body. And the biological basis of that is very, very poorly understood. And it seems like there's probably more than one biological basis. So if you take some of the genetic mutations that are associated with autism spectrum disorder, and you introduce them in a genetically modified mouse, but only in the cells that are in the skin that are involved in touch sensation, then you can recapitulate some of the touch sensitivity. And to me, that's shocking because I would have guessed that those genes would only be working in the brain, not that they would be working in the skin. So I think there's a lot to learn about sensory sensitivity. One aspect of David Linden's research that I found particularly interesting was his critical examination of the classic question of nature versus nurture. In fact, he vehemently opposes the very nature of the question itself, emphasizing that it is simply the wrong question. He asserts that the idea of nature and the idea of nurture are more nuanced than we tend to think. In this context, most people tend to understand nature as purely genetic, hereditary. Nurture, on the other hand, is interpreted as only familial. But in reality, these concepts do not oppose each other. For example, a trait such as height is influenced by genetics, yes, but also by nutrition, pollution, culture, and stress. So the question of height is not one that can be answered by asking about nature versus nurture, but rather we should be considering the interplay between nature and nurture, how they affect one another to make us individual, to make us unique. Hence the name of Lyndon's book. Lyndon's take on this classic question was revolutionary for me. Since I was in high school, I have been fascinated by the question of nature versus nurture. I found it to be an interesting framework through which to conceptualize who I was and what made me different from the next person. 
This led me down a rabbit hole in which I began to explore the genetic differences between humans and other life forms. Human genomes are around 98.5% similar to chimpanzees and about 50% similar to bananas. So what makes us so special? How have we become such dominant life forms on this earth? How is it that we have become the driving force of a geological change in an age we have so aptly called the Anthropocene? This framework invites us to consider what defines humanity as compared to other forms of life. Then, zooming in, how we define ourselves as compared to other humans. Those kinds of questions seem to encapsulate the idea of versus. Humans versus other forms of life. Me versus you. Nature versus nurture. But consider Linden's explanation of the interaction between nature and nurture instead. The way he evidences that they build off of one another so cohesively. Linden's framework invites us to build questions like, what makes us similar to other life forms? What can we learn from them? How does the creative process evoke our humanity? And how do we grapple with both the burden and the privilege of being a human and living in the Anthropocene? This was one of my major takeaways from my conversation with David Linden. He invited me to consider the gray spaces between the supposed black and white binary of nature and nurture, emphasizing that these liminal spaces are the most interesting places to hunt for answers to our questions about humanity, creativity, and individuality. Yeah, I kind of wanted to ask you a question going back to before in the conversation when you were talking about traits that are hereditary or not. I think that many scientists tend to stray away from discussions about traits that are hereditary due to the societal implications of what that could connote. People tend to think of eugenics or designer babies or things with undertones of sexism and racism. So I was wondering how you confront these lines of thinking when you're talking about the aspects of traits that are genetic and what stems from society? Yeah, so that's a great question. And it's something that's important because the science of genetics has been misused over and over and over again in racist and colonial ways. And it's not just something that happened in the past, it's happening right now in the present as well. So you got to have to be very, very careful when you talk about the heritability of human traits. But what I believe profoundly is that if you are going to be anti-sexist and anti-racist and an ally to people of all kinds of gender identities and sexualities, ultimately, you're not going to serve that purpose well by just pretending that genetics is not a phenomenon. Just saying, oh, no, that's problematic. So you can't talk about that. No one is going to ultimately be convinced or supported by that approach. But I think you have to be enormously careful. And there are lots of people who've written very well about this. Angela Saini is someone who's written some terrific books on the problems and misuse of genetics. Adam Rutherford is another person who's written very well on this sort of topic. But there are two sides to saying that certain traits are heritable. So a lot of my gay friends are very invested in the notion that there is not necessarily genetic, but biological component to sexual orientation. Because they say, as soon as I had any sexual feelings, they were towards the same sex as me. And it doesn't feel socialized. It feels like something fundamental, like my eye color or my height. And when you look at the legal basis, for example, in the United States for granting more rights to gay folks, it has relied on this notion of inevitability that 
these traits are at least to some degree innate. And if you look at the Supreme Court decision that legalized gay marriage in the United States, it relies on this notion of this trait not being a choice, but being on something deeply basic and innate. Now, the interesting thing about that is that if you talk to different people, they have very different ideas about this. Like most gay folks in the United States will say, yeah, I was born that way. As soon as I had these feelings, that was the way I was. And it really feels like it is innate. And there are other folks, though, who say, no, I'm gay by choice. I made a choice to be gay, and that is reflective of my agency in the world. And I'm offended by the idea that I was just compelled to it. I feel like I chose it. I don't think there's a right or wrong here. I think you can come to your traits any one of a number of ways. And I think it's very important to say that when I throw these numbers around, like height is 80% heritable, that's not something that applies to an individual. It applies to a population, right? And so if you take a trait, let's say schizophrenia. Schizophrenia is also a very highly heritable trait, about 80%. But there might be some people for which their gene variants make it 100% chance that they're going to be schizophrenic. And other people where their gene variants make it that, oh, there's only a 30% chance, but if that is coupled with certain events in their life, then they might. So I think it's very important to distinguish populations from individuals when we talk about heritability and also to respect that there are enormous cultural influences on most of these traits and even on a lot of the traits that we don't think about as being so culturally influenced. Even height has a cultural influence through the choices of food that people make, even when a range of foods are available. So you kind of touched on this, but in unique, you emphasize the idea of individuality and what makes us unique from one another and talking about your discussion of society and its effect on our traits. We live in a Western society where individuality is very emphasized. And especially now where we are so politically divided and the idea of identity politics and labels are creating lots of binaries and divisions in our society. How should your discussion of individuality and unique be interpreted and applied in our society? And maybe how could it be misinterpreted? Well, okay, let me give you an example of how it can be misinterpreted. And this is a classic notion. So racists like to say that the environment of Africa was less demanding, that it was easier to survive and get food and go on with your life than it was in Europe. And as a result, over many generations, this made people in Europe more clever than people in Africa. This is utter nonsense when you realize that there are lots of reasons why. One thing is that environmental differences can affect evolution through selective pressure, but they do so locally. If you live at a high altitude, like in northern Ethiopia or in the plains of Tibet, yes, the people there accrue genetic variations that allow them to deal with high altitude better. So it's not wrong that your environment influences how you evolve, but it's a local environment. So if you talk about something like Europe 
Well, there are lots of local environments in Europe. There's high mountains. There are places that are warm. There are places that are cold. There are places that are sunny. There are places that are cloudy. There are places where these foods are available and places where other foods are available. Same with Africa. Africa isn't a single environment. It has deserts and jungles and, and mountains and floodplains and all the different kinds of physical environments that you find. So the racist notion that Africa is a unitary environment that is somehow less challenging than the unitary environment of Europe fails in many ways. But one way is it fails based on the assumption that these environments are unitary. They're not. There's all kinds of environments in either of those two. That's an example of a way in which genetic ideas and explanation can be misused for the ends of racism and colonialism. Let me give another example where people tend to confuse things. Body mass index, which is sort of an index of how much fat you're carrying in your body. And it's not a perfect index, but it's moderately good as a measure. It turns out that body mass index is heritable as a trait. And it's heritable in France, and it's heritable in the United States. Now, if you look at body mass index on average in the United States and France, they're significantly different. Americans have a significantly higher body mass index than French people. So some people look at that and they say, oh, well, if this is a heritable trait and it's higher in Americans, it must be that Americans have different gene variants that makes them fatter. No, it isn't true at all. The reason is because Americans eat more calories and they exercise less. It's not a genetic difference. In other words, things can be heritable in a given population, but that doesn't mean that the difference between populations in a trait is itself necessarily heritable. This sort of discussion of the interactions between culture and the environment and biology is so interesting. I feel like very pertinent to society these days. I wanted to talk about the role of creativity in your work. One aspect that I really enjoy is your infusion of personality and humor into it from your blog to your writing style. I find it very refreshing in a field that takes itself so seriously. What role does humor, maybe creativity and personality play in your professional career and how does it influence the scientific process for you? Well, thank you for saying that. I have two jobs. I have a job during the day, which is an academic job. I run a biomedical research laboratory in a medical school. And the output of that job is specialized scientific papers written in very technical language for other scientists. And so there isn't that much humor that, uh, that shows up. Occasionally, I'll crack a joke if I'm giving a talk at a university. I'm going to University of Texas next week. I'll probably make a few jokes there. But it isn't fundamental. However, my job at night is to write books and magazine articles and do television for a general audience. And for a general audience, I think anything you can do to humanize science and draw people in is going to be enormously beneficial if you can tell it as a story that might interrelate to your own life. People were built to tell stories. And people like stories about other people. It's a fundamentally human thing. The other thing is that when I write about science for a general audience, I'm not just trying to convey the information about science. I have another goal, and that is to humanize scientists. 
We scientists are asking an awful lot of people in the general world. We're asking for their tax dollars to fund our research. We're asking for our forbearance for experiments with animals, which have where it is reasonable to have ethical concerns. And we're asking people to believe us when we say things like put on your mask to stop the spread of COVID or the planet is getting warmer and this is a crisis and we have to deal with it. And I think if people see scientists as fundamentally not like them, as these creatures that inhabit an ivory tower and wear white coats, they're less likely to to go along with these other things that, that we hope they will, whether it is funding our labs or listening to us when we think there's a crisis. So in the accidental mind, which is just so refreshing because you put forward that the brain is a kind of a hot mess. And it's full of complexity, but also this kind of mystery of neural function. As you say, it's a place of creativity, but just a kind of an ad hoc place. Just help us understand what inspired you to write that book and your findings, because it's a different perspective than I've heard. Well, I wrote that book nearly 20 years ago. And at that time, when I looked at popular books about neuroscience, I didn't find very many that I liked. I found some, like Joe Ledoux's book, The Emotional Brain, that I thought were great, but I thought were a little bit too hard for a lot of general readers. And then I found other books that I thought were at an appropriate level, but either they bored me or I thought they were borderline fraudulent in some cases. They just got things wrong. So I thought, all right, time to put up or shut up and write your own brain book. And so I took an academic sabbatical. My family moved from the USA to England for a year. And I sat in the pub and at home, and I wrote a book about an introduction to the brain through an evolutionary lens. And I realized that one of the problems I had with science communication, particularly on television, is the brain was revered as this sort of ideally organized and engineered machine that could do all these wonderful things. And if you look at the science programs of the day, the brain is spinning against a backdrop of galaxies and some man with a very deep voice is intoning the brain, the most complicated entity that there has ever been. And when you actually look at the brain, you realize that just like everything else that evolved, it got stuck in certain design modes. In other words, when you have a car, right, most model years, they make very small changes in the car. And then every once in a while, they do a complete redesign of the whole thing. They wipe the slate clean and they do a complete redesign. That never happens in evolution. In evolution, you never get to wipe the slate clean. You're always dealing with the accumulated choices, if you will, that were selected for during a cross evolution. Then you have to make the best with what you got. And neurons, for example, the cells that are the building blocks of brains, are leaky and they're slow and they're deeply inefficient. And so if you want to build a computing device with them, there are only certain ways that you can do that. You can't just think like an engineer and work from first principles. And so really that, the thesis statement of the book, The Accidental Mind, is that so much of our human experience comes from the fact that the brain evolved in these quirky ways that were a pastiche. Francois Jacob famously said, evolution is a tinkerer, not an engineer. And the brain is the work of a tinkerer. 
Yes. And I often find this element of accident or chance, what happens during the process of improvisation. We've had many, many conversations with improvisers, notably musicians, and a lot of these things that take place. I often feel like as an artist, the less I know, the more I know how to do it. The less I'm aware, the more I can tap into these things. And it might be maybe just going back to these traits that we might have needed before and now we don't use them but somehow we know how to do it without knowing how to do it well i think you could certainly make the case that creativity has been useful for a long time in human evolution and probably in our pre-human ancestors as well so it's not surprising that creativity is manifest in all kinds of ways, from building a trap to catch a critter, to musical improvisation, to making a sculpture. Indeed. And what you watch in the animal world, that often it might arise from need to survive, whether you see the murmurations of birds or fish moving in these wonderful patterns. And sometimes that's about survival too, evading predators. But also find that with the conversations with improvisers is that it's about losing the sense of self. Like something happens when they've done some of these brain scans uh, during these performances that are improvised, that it's like the sense of self somehow dissolves, that area that's about self and individual and that you somehow become, I don't know, beyond oneself. Well, that may well be. I mean, I'm a little skeptical of that because honestly, if I were to look at a brain scan and someone said, point to me the region that has the sense of self, I don't know that I could actually do that. So in other words, I accept this notion as a higher level explanation that can be really useful. I would say our ability to reduce that to brain regions and brain activities now is still really not there. I'm not saying it will never be there. It may emerge, but it hasn't emerged yet. Sense of self is a really, really interesting idea, and it's something that fascinates me because it is used both kind of at a very high level in a cognitive way, but neuroscientists think of sense of self more in terms of our senses that literally point inward. So when we think about the senses, we usually think about things like touch or vision or taste or smell or hearing that are designed to tell us not about our own bodies, but about the external world. But we also have all these senses that are interoceptive rather than exteroceptive. And they're telling me things like, how is my head oriented relative to gravity? That's my balance, vestibular sim. Where are my limbs in space at this moment that I can do even with my eyes closed, right? I know where my arm is, even with my eyes closed, because I'm getting information from my muscles that is being sent to my brain. I know how distended my bladder is and whether I'm going to need to go to the bathroom soon. I know my immune state, my breathing, my, my blood chemistry, my digestion. All of these things are senses of self. And the degree to which they influence higher cognitive processes is, to me, one of the really fascinating questions of neuroscience right now, and one that we're just really starting to understand. Yes, indeed. And there is that mind-body dilemma. We just think that consciousness takes place around the brain and the mind because we have our eyes are there and everything. But it is a thinking or a feedback process with the body. 
Well, yeah, it is. So on the one sense, yes, we really understand the world through the experience of having bodies. On the other hand, if you have a high spinal cord paralysis and you can't feel your body, it's not like suddenly your mental life doesn't exist anymore or is fundamentally shifted, right? So how do we understand this? This is a difficult problem. Being embodied is crucial for how we develop, and yet somehow if we are disembodied in certain ways, we can tolerate that too. Well, is that because we only got embodied early and it's okay and there was a critical period and it's over? We don't know. These are really interesting questions. Yes, exactly. And again, I'm also skeptical about where things take place in the brain because, of course, there's these complex things that are changing all the time. It's not a, like a fixed space. It's not a computer on top of a body. And so also in the compass of pleasure, you really investigate this other aspect of where pleasure comes from. And I guess, again, it goes back to the brain. Right. So there is a circuit on the brain for pleasure, which neuroscientists like to call reward. And basically, it evolved so that crucial things like eating food and drinking water and having sex and making babies would be pleasurable, so we'd be motivated to do them and survive and get our genes into the next generation. But of course, all kinds of things can activate this reward circuitry in the brain, including social things and creativity and problem solving. But even things that you would think are counterintuitive, for example, generally speaking, pain is aversive and it's not pleasurable, but there are certain situations where pain is rewarding, right? Either an exercise or if you're an enthusiast of S&M sexual practice or what have you, there are lots of ways in which pain can actually be rewarding. Likewise, food is rewarding is something that we're born with, right? We are, we know to eat even as newborn babies and to take pleasure from that. But if you have a particular cultural or religious idea, then fasting might be rewarding, even though it is going against what you would think would be our most fundamental innate instinct. Yes, or certain collective cultures where they have the annual fast or a regular fast, increasing the pain can heighten the pleasure. It's interesting because we had some conversations about like dopamine and how all these addictions are just playing on this dopamine balance so that if you can increase little doses of pain, it helps dampen this excessive pleasure. Unfortunately, more and more, so many things we consume, whether it's our social media or whatever, are designed now to be addictive or viral. Yes, that's absolutely true. And a lot of it, the devil is in the details. If you live in Bolivia in the countryside and there are coca plants growing there and you chew the leaf to get a little tiny dose of cocaine and that helps you have a little more energy as you're walking around in your farm, that's not really a problem. You're getting a very slow dose, comes on very slowly, it's a low dose, and then it tails off very slowly. Whereas the very same compound inhaled in powder form, which acts very rapidly and very strongly, is enormously addictive and destructive and very quickly makes it so that it blunts your pleasure and you need larger and larger doses to feel the same kind of reward. So the timing of things is really important. Part of the reasons why 
cigarettes are even more addictive than heroin is because when you smoke, you suck on that cigarette and then you get a tiny little reward instantly. There's not a lag. You get it right away within about a half a second. And then you do it over and over and over and over again. And that is something that really teaches your brain that sucking on that cigarette is associated with that little tiny pleasure buzz. And as you correctly said a moment ago, this is exactly what makers of websites and phone apps are trying to replicate. They're trying to give you those little rapid rewards all the time that will make you stay on their creation. Yes, it's a scary world. And I wonder if you had been approached. I, mean, I know you're not a neuroscientist, but I know that they're certainly mining all the universities for people who can tap into our impulses. Well, after I wrote Compass of Pleasure, I actually was asked to consult for a number of companies on reward. And while I did for one, I actually turned down most of them because honestly, I thought they were evil. Well, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> Thanks for that inside track. They, um, I didn't want to give them my neurobiological insight about reward because I wasn't confident that they were going to use it for good. Yes, indeed. They've said that they don't really care about you. We just yeah. are into making money. <laughs> this is what has been on record. So it's like not a mystery. So thank you for your principled stand on that. In closing, as you think about teachers or collaborators or influences that have been important to you as you think about the future and education and the kind of world that we're leaving for the next generation, what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? Well, I guess what I would like young people to know, preserve, and remember is first and foremost, the greatest gift that you can have is the ability to follow your own ideas. My particular job as a university professor running a research lab is a terrific job in many ways. And you might say, well, but you could make a whole lot more money if you took your skills and went to Wall Street or whatever, sold nutritional supplements or what have you. Well, that's true. But I get to wake up every day and follow my own curiosity. I don't have a boss telling me that I should work on this or that. It's just me. And that is a gift like no other gift. There aren't that many jobs in the world that let you do that. You can do that if you're an artist. You can do that if you are certain kinds of scientists or certain kinds of other academics. But most people have to spend their lives being told what to do. My advice to young people is look inside yourself. And if it's important, important to not be told what to do all the time. That should be your guiding light for what you want to spend your life doing. If following your own curiosity is the most important thing to you, as it is for me, then you have to think very, very carefully about the kind of career that's going to allow you to do that, because most don't. Yes, superb advice. And we're so glad that you followed your curiosity and your own ideas, because they're immensely shareable and illuminating. Thank you, David Linden, for helping us understand what creates human individuality, how genetics, experience, human touch, our minds, and a variety of elements influence who we become and how the things that set us apart are essential to our ability to live together. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process.
Well, thank you for having me. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Kali Cho with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews produced on this episode was Kali Cho. Digital media coordinator was Sam Myers. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at teen at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.